Rosie, are you able? Yes. Rosie is the transcriptionist for our podcast production business. Thanks for your dedication and your hard work. Later, please, because I'm doing my job. <laughs> Thank you for taking a break from your busy work of transcribing podcasts. <laughs> I want but, to finish this one first. It makes me so crazy. But people want to know how you like the job. Which of the trumpet podcasts have you liked the best? Uh, trumpet? Sorry. That's how busy Rosie is doing the transcription. So it's a service that we're happy to provide. Let's get into the uh, show with Abel James. You can find show notes for this at jamesnewcomontrumpet.com slash Abel, A-B-E-L. Oh, you don't put this up. Everybody, uh, welcome to the show. This is James Newcomb coming into your earballs. And uh, I have on the line, on the other side of the of the world from where I am in Vietnam, a name that you might recognize. His, his name is Abel James. And I heard of Abel James working on one of my podcast clients, Ben Greenfield, pretty well known in the uh, health and fitness industry. And he and Abel have crossed paths many times. And then what really made me pull the trigger on contacting Abel myself was he was on another podcast that I service called Superhumanize with Ariana Summer. So if you're looking, if you're into health and fitness and you're looking for some new podcasts to check out, check those out, Ben Greenfield Fitness and Ariana Summer. And that's how I came to know of Abel James. And it turns out that Abel is actually pretty well versed in the realm of music. He's actually the author of a book titled The Musical Brain. And it's a kind of an academic look into how music affects the brain and host of a very popular podcast called The Fat Burning Man Show. There's got to be a story behind that title. We're just going to chew the fat for a little while. And I'm getting to know Abel right alongside you all listening in. So it's really great to have you on the show, man. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoy talking to, uh, you know, of course, health people, but it's a real treat to talk to what I feel like are my real people, or at least they've been my people longer as the musicians. And to be yeah. honest, I probably wouldn't have my podcast and it wouldn't have gone where it went without music. And I think it's really important that people realize that. Tell me about how you got started in music. So I grew up in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire. We didn't have cable TV. We didn't even really, we had like one and a half to three channels, depending on the weather. And my dad would have to go up on the roof and literally move the antenna around. So we didn't really have external sources of um, distraction or technology or even media in general. Like even it's weird because I was born in 1984, literally and figuratively now, I guess. But (laughs) I I missed the music video things like growing up. I, I, they're still lost on me. I heard all the music though. I listened to the radio all the time. One of my first favorite songs was like born in the USA. That was one of my first memories was just dancing around to that song. And so I didn't take it seriously at first, um, but my parents really encouraged musical listening, musical experience. They had instruments laying around the house. My dad played guitar in college a little bit, you know, a little bit of trombone in high school. My mom had played clarinet. And so when I uh, showed a lot of interest in starting, I, I really wanted to play the saxophone. And they're like, well, we can't afford that. So how about we get mom's old clarinet from grandma's basement? That's where it's been just festering for 30 years. And uh, if you get good at that, then 
then you can save up some money and we'll help you buy a saxophone. And that's exactly what happened. I got obsessed with playing the clarinet. And it was one of those just old crappy ones where the cork was was so rotted off on the bottom that every time I hit a low note, the bell would fall off. <laughs> you know, I had to tape it on there. But I just, I loved it. I loved playing. I loved the experience of, of feeling free. And it felt like a different language. English isn't always the most fun. You know, I'm, I'm inherently an introvert and I really like something about music where the lyrics of the words don't get in the way, at least sometimes. I, I have to tell this story because I'm editing a episode of the Trumpet Dynamics podcast that I, I released it five years ago. And it's um, kind, of a, kind of like a biography of William Vacchiano. You probably don't know that name, but trumpet players know that name because he was the principal trumpeter of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra back in the okay. like the 50s, 60s, maybe into the 70s. I don't know the exact dates, but pretty well known. Just one of the best players, teachers on trumpet ever, right? The way he got started on trumpet, speaking of the clarinet, is that his father actually wanted him to start on the clarinet. Hmm. Okay, so he puts, and he, his father is Italian, he doesn't speak English, and he puts a little bit of money in, in young William's coat pocket to go to school and says, no, in Italian, by the clarinet. Well, William Vacchiano can't remember what instrument he's going to get. He's going to, he's like seven years old. He can't remember. So he gets to school, right? And the band director is going through the instruments and he says the clarinet and then the cornet. And I think the cornet came before the clarinet. And so Vacchiano said, yeah, that's what I want. <laughs> or wow. that's what my dad said to get. He said to get the cornet. But he actually meant to get the clarinet. So this titan, this titan of the trumpet world could have become the, <laughs> the greatest clarinetist of all time. But destiny had other plans. Well, that's how it works. And that's how it worked for me kind of to know that I was destined to be the greatest of all time. Just that right. I kept surfing around different instruments and kind of seeing. I, and I got really into the saxophone after that, the alto and then the tenor saxophone. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I hit junior high and high school, um, I, I started playing guitar and that really I, for some reason I think it was the music that I started listening to it kind of went from I remember loving Dave Brubeck you know before I, I hit puberty yeah. and all these other thankfully <laughs> I got a lot of exposure to some jazz greats but then you know I just wanted to listen to Led Zeppelin and Hendrix and Green Day and Nirvana and uh, you know saxophone didn't work quite so well for that style as guitar or bass and drums. And so I just experimented a bunch. My my brother became a very good drummer and that became his main instrument. And then I settled on guitar and uh, in, in high school, being really shy, I didn't want to sing at all, but my girlfriend made me. And so I, they started just like rolling me out on stage and then I started performing a ton and like didn't really stop throughout college. I was in a bunch of groups, toured a bunch and then after college, I moved to Austin, D.C. and then Austin, and was playing two to th 250, sometimes 300 shows a year with all sorts of different groups on all sorts of different instruments. And it was great fun until I burnt myself out and then went put all that energy into podcasting. So <laughs> just kind of lurching around, but definitely putting in the time and putting in the work into these different domains, which I think cross-pollinate each other eventually. I'm curious about your book, The Musical Brain. What led to that? Like what, why did you pursue that? And tell us the story behind that. Thanks for the question. Um, so that's, I wrote it and did the research coming up on my last year of college. And, um, 
I did undergrad at Dartmouth and that was a, I, I did a few independent projects that were too interdisciplinary to really fit into a box or fit into a space. And so my interests have, have really been in studying the brain and brain science, which was what I did for most of my undergrad degree and playing, reading, studying about music and marrying those two different fields and, and looking at the research between those was really interesting to me then and, and still is. And back then, you know, I graduated in 2006. So in the early 2000s, there still wasn't a ton of readily available research about what musical training or musical experience could do to the brain, what absolute pitch is, you know, like how that shows up in different cultures and people who speak different languages across the world. I, I found so many interesting things when I started digging around. And so I decided to do a, uh, basically a summary of the research that existed then that I was able to get at through the libraries of the Ivy League, which I only had access to, you know, for a limited period of time. Thankfully, you know, over the years, that's really opened up. The internet has opened up a lot of this research. So now we're seeing a ton of great work and the musical brain is, is pretty well dated at this point, but very relevant in the sense that <laughs> it asks the question, what does musical training do to your brain? Why does music even exist at all? Why is it pumped into our earbuds, into elevators? Why does it modulate our shopping behavior? One of the answers that I found is that it's inherently linked in the brain to language but it's almost a more primitive function of language that allows us to integrate more of the emotional experience and more of the whole brain instead of just speaking English, for example, which is highly logical, very much outside of yourself. You know, if you're thinking of improvising, then you could be thinking of like, oh, it's a C7 and then we've got an augmented coming up and all that. Or you could be kind of in it, in flow. Mm -hmm. You're not yeah. thinking about any of that. Right. And so um, examining all these different things was really fascinating for me. And musical training, while the research doesn't show that it increases your IQ by 55 points in a weekend or anything crazy like that, some of the benefits are really obvious and some of them are, are less obvious. Like one of the ones that struck me most is musicians are better able to, and this is kind of over-summarizing it, but the listening skills improve, not only to listening to uh, music and being able to pick out the different instruments and the different lines with a higher degree of clarity, but also picking up on the weird little inflections in the human voice, the emotional content of speech versus the logical lyrical content of speech, which often are at odds with each other. So if you have musical training, you're mm. better able to pick up on what someone actually means behind the words. So maybe it makes you a little more empathetic. Could be. Huh. And maybe it even, and the research that I've seen doesn't necessarily say this, but I would suspect if you're a better listener and you're better able to hear what someone's saying in the inflections of their voice, then you're probably better able to speak and communicate your own emotions in that way. And I would imagine that that amount of musical training that I had for most of my career suddenly going into podcasting where I'm doing this essentially the same thing. I'm singing without musical lines a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and most people who are speaking, especially musicians should be, that makes it more engaging. That makes it more interesting. And, uh, so I really like looking at the parallels. I hope you're enjoying this episode with Abel James. 
I have a very short announcement before we get back to the episode. I have been hard at work getting a book and an audio recording of the same book ready for you. It's called Obvious Atoms. It's written in 1916, so it's very old. And a lot of people describe this book as the best marketing book you've never read. Now, you may not be an entrepreneur, you may not be a businessman of any kind, but I think that if you were to listen or read this book, I think that you would get a lot of value out of it because it's just like that phrase, common sense isn't all that common. Sometimes the answer to that which is perplexing us is the most obvious thing. We like to think that we, sh- we should get a fancy, highfalutin solution to a, to a problem, but really, sometimes the answer is the obvious one. So I have it ready for you. It's on my mobile app, and all you have to do to get access to Obvious Atoms is go to jamesnewcombontrumpet.com slash obvious. That's jamesnewcombontrumpet.com slash O-B-V-I-O-U-S, and that'll walk you through the steps required to download the app and get access to the content. I think there's two or three steps. Not too bad. Take you about two minutes to get through it, but you'll be off to the races. So again, it's jamesnewcombontrumpet.com slash obvious and get your hands and your ears on this free offering, Obvious Atoms. Let's go back to the show with Abel James. Well, you're singing my song because I was um, a musician full-time and probably about six, probably about six years ago, I went into podcasting. Maybe you and I maybe, maybe have some similarities. And I'm just, I just like to know what got you into podcasting in the first place. It's probably very different 10 years ago than it is now. Yeah. And it sounds to me like you, you sort of got a little bit burned out in music. Maybe you thought, I don't know about this being what I want to do until I'm 90 years old. Maybe <laughs> I should explore other things. What led to the podcast? And, and it was, was it always the Fat Burning Man podcast? Uh, yeah, the podcast always was. That's technically really? the only podcast I've ever released. And it does have a story okay. behind it. But, but the story coming from the world of music is basically, you know, not that I hit max level, but in, in terms of like kind of the Austin local club scene and playing really good. I had a residency on top of a roof deck right in downtown Austin at like Lance Armstrong's bar where I paid well. You know, I would have sometimes not very many people would come if it was raining or bad weather. But when it was jamming, you know, there were hundreds of people there. It was outside. I just I loved it. So I had a few gigs like that. Um, but I was still working my day job, you know, because it wasn't bringing in enough money to pay off my student loans and, and, you know, I, I had a house in Austin. And so, and, and also thankfully I had the option of, of working in a job where it didn't take my whole attention, if that makes sense. Like I was working in consulting part-time, but kind of full-time, like I was paid for full-time, but I could do the work really quickly and efficiently. So I would just try to crush out my work in, in two to four hours or whatever. And then I would play music and I would play a bunch of different gigs. And being in my 20s, I could get away with that somehow staying out until 3 a.m. And then, you know, waking up for a conference call at 6 a.m. or whatever and loading all the gear, you know, plugging everything in and, and all that. But over the course of all that experience, I don't know how many different PAs I worked on for, for my own gigs or for bands because I became 
the guy who knew how to work the PA because other guys in the band were just like, oh, I don't know how to do it. Or Abel's better. Let's let's have him do it. And so I got to learn how to turn the knobs and how to do EQ and how to mix for live sound and what different speakers do in different places and how to use microphones. Not necessarily to a professional level, but definitely at an experiential level. I was learning hands-on really quickly. So I, I had been running websites since I was a kid, really mostly for my bands and, and music projects. I, I learned how to build websites. I had a WordPress website, you know, that I eventually transferred over. And then I started... I'm like, well, maybe I could write about health, too. That sounds kind of fun. That's like a something I can never take my eye off the ball if I want to be out there. I need to learn about this, and I need to practice this. And my mom was a holistic nurse practitioner, and so it kind of was in the family. And I'm like, yeah, let's – and, and also, I, you know, I, I ran marathons and track and stuff, so I love running, and I, and I have been, you know, a career kind of recreational athlete, never great. But putting those two things together, when I did start – the podcast it seemed just enough people told me they're like you have a great website you have great content obviously you're a musician why don't you have a podcast i'm like what's a podcast you know because it's still <laughs> yeah 10 years and, ago um, and then i looked into it and i already had you know my zoom recorder i had a couple of different not zoom video you know the zoom audio recorders which, right yes yes which i had used and still used to record live shows which are just great so i was using that and i was calling in people on the phone and like literally holding the phone up to it at the beginning and started <laughs> just sloppy and slow. And then eventually, you know, it didn't take long for me to just do a few of them. I'm like, this is a terrible workflow. Let's tune it up. You know, let's, let's skip all these steps. Let's get a better, better microphone, better in interface. You know, so a few times over the years I've, I've made those upgrades and it's, it's an amazing experience because you just kind of keep chugging along. The problem is, as you well know, when you sign up for a podcast, it's kind of a life sentence. It's one of those things where it's not like you have a standing Tuesday residency on a roof deck somewhere. It's like, no, you started a podcast and the assumption is that you'll be churning out episodes forever on a regular basis. And that's that's a lot. So you have to schedule around that and you, you have to plan for that and be good to yourself. Yeah, people think that they're going to start a podcast and then three months later they're going to retire and live off the proceeds of their show. And No, no, no. It's a shark. And the whole business that's built around it is a shark. I've learned the hard way. Where, what do you mean it's a shark? Where if you stop swimming, you die. You sink and you die. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, that's kind of the nature of the internet. It, it, maybe it was always this way, you know, the 15 minutes of fame thing or you know, people are only famous when the TV puts them on or something like that. But you, there was this assumption from, I think, like all those Tim Ferriss books and some of the productivity things that are just like, set up a system, let it run, and you're, you're going to be a millionaire, especially if you get something viral, especially if you get, you know, a big podcast or a big video or a big something. And that's just not true, especially if you admit, I mean, maybe it is if you want to really make it big, save all your money and then stop and cut everything off. But if you don't cut everything off and shut down all your websites, I mean, <sighs> the overhead for a lot of this stuff, especially, especially once you get a little scale and you're running your own platform is thousands and thousands of dollars a month for us. It's been 10 or 15 grand with a very small team for most of the years that we've been doing this. 10 or 15 grand a month that you have to make every month, no matter what happens. And uh, that's not something where you can just like get a viral hit or even get a really good show going 
Um, because, you know, to be honest, even with a, with a really big podcast, it's not big enough for you to never do anything again. You got to keep going and you have to show up for people. I think it's a, it's a promise, right? It's, it's an experience. And uh, hopefully you're not in it for yourself. I know I'm not. I wouldn't show up every day for myself. I, I do show up with a sense of service knowing that hopefully it's, it's serving other people or educating other people as I work on my own craft, which, which mm. I consider podcasting really close to working on music. And I've learned a lot from practicing both. You know, that mindset that you're talking about or that we're talking about set up a four-hour work week or a 10-minute work day or whatever it is. It's kind of like searching for that pot of gold or trying to like thinking you're going to get the lottery, the lottery ticket at the gas station and you're just going to retire. It's kind of a mindset in, in my view. You just don't want to work. You're just a little lazy. But the people like Ben Greenfield and I, I've mentioned and you, you're obviously successful in your own right, those types of shows that actually succeed to whatever degree, they have the mindset of, I'm going to show up every day and do my work, and I'm not going to do it for myself. I'm not going to do it for money. I'm going to do it to serve others. From that attitude, that's what makes you attractive to others, and that's what brings in the revenue. Definitely not in the first three months. Yeah, not not in the first three months, not even for me. Um, hmm. It costs money at first because I, I was hosting it on Amazon AWS. This was kind of before... <laughs> there were user-friendly podcast hosting services. So, you know, I didn't know any better. And uh, and all of a sudden, I get my my AWS, but, you know, Amazon hosting service for anyone who doesn't know. Basically, they, they host files, or, or they used to. That, that was a, a pretty commonly used thing um, for low-volume <laughs> sharing the files. So all of a sudden, I went from, like, you know, eight or 12 bucks a month or something in, in me being charged for the throughput of the different files, um, which was only, this was still only audio to like, I got my bill. It was like $258 or something. I'm like, what on earth is going on? And then I looked into it and I realized my podcast had just taken a monster jump and I was getting huge amounts of downloads that were, you know, taxing the servers and I was getting charged for it, but I hadn't monetized it yet. You know, I had, it was still just kind of this, this thing I was doing. So I had to figure that out. I think it's important that people realize at the beginning, not only should you not try to make money, you should, you should come to the table with a small amount of investment. It doesn't have to be much. It can be a few hundred bucks, but be realistic about it and don't, um, don't shortchange yourself either. Not that you need the best gear at the beginning. You really don't. But for a few hundred bucks now, you can get everything you need that's at least the level of quality, probably much more the level of quality than, than you'll need to do an excellent show. And some of the biggest shows out there still use junk gear. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter as much as it used to. Even when I started, I remember 10 years ago about when I started doing the, the video stuff, I was trying to compete with mainstream news and movies, right? I, I was trying to compete with film in terms of level of professionalism. Then I was on a big ABC TV show. And, and I realized, like, while I was creating my podcast, literally in the bathroom at the hotel room, <laughs> in the hours that I had away from the show, because it was like 14 hours on set, I, it had a nice white background. It was kind of a small room. The echo wasn't too bad with the towels in there. So I'm literally recording in the bathroom at the hotel and getting more downloads, getting more views than the primetime ABC TV show that I'm starring on. And I'm like, what on earth is happening here? Like, this is really, it was so bizarre to realize that. And it, it really helped me 
also realize that you don't need to perfectly, you don't need to speak perfectly. You don't, your pronunciation doesn't need to be spot on. You can make little blips. There can be ums and, and people, especially post pandemic. I I don't know about you, but I like seeing people's like cat jump up on the keyboard and their kid run in the room. And, you know, the fact that we're all a little bit more exposed, hopefully allows us to be more transparent and not have to put on that air of professionalism that's really phony and doesn't work honestly as well as you know a more authentic approach on the internet anyway why fat burning obviously it's a reference to the burning man festival (laughs) in nevada what made you choose uh fat burning as your topic for your show well uh (laughs) i've I like approaching brands kind of as a band name where it doesn't have to be professional. Once again, it can be silly or it can be a double or triple entendre. And for me, it's kind of the, the inside joke is that, yeah, it's a reference to Burning Man to some degree, you know, kind of rebel culture and going against the grain. Uh, but also burning fat, fat burning is something that's become extremely popular since since I started. It wasn't so much back then, but the idea that we should be fueling our bodies from either stored body fat or or fat that we're eating as opposed to sugar and carbs from modern grains and, and manufactured foods is another thesis of kind of our our dietary approach and nutritional approach. And then like the 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 biggest secret joke kind of inside baseball is that 12 years ago, Easter weekend, I came home. I had just moved from Washington, D.C., everything that I that I owned at the time to Austin, Texas. I'd been living there for about six months and I came home one uh, Friday night, Easter weekend, and the entire apartment complex was up in flames. I lost everything. I lost all seven guitars. I lost the album I was working on and three hard drives that were backed up there. Um, and at the time I had been, when I worked in consulting, I had a great insurance, um, policy for the first time in my life. I'd never had that. And so I went to the doctor every two weeks and I followed his advice and he told me to eat lots of whole grains and zero dietary cholesterol and drink my orange juice and and do a lot of other things, including putting me on about a half dozen different prescription medications over the course of 18 months that led me to being about 30 pounds overweight. My triglycerides were high. My thyroid was crapping out. I basically had the body of a of a forty year old man, even though I was in my early twenties, and I was just having a lot of different health problems that manifested in different ways. And so when when I came home and I lost <laughs> everything I had, also including I I didn't I had gigs booked. I had no saxophone. I had no guitar. I had no PA, and I still had all these gigs booked. I still had to do my work for, uh, you know, working from home with no computer. I didn't even have clothes. And I'm like, God, my life is a mess now. What do I do? And I looked in the mirror and I'm like, you're fat too. Great. You're supposed to be an athlete. You know, this is, I've, I've always been, or I've, I've generally been in pretty great shape. And it was just like, this isn't me. Let's, let's make this the project now. Let's mm-hmm. put my, all my energy into this because the rest of my life is too much of a cluster right now to to even admit to myself. Let's let's really go deep and forget what your doctor said. Let's try to get the fat off and then let's run a marathon. And uh, so that's what I did. But getting the fat off and getting down a single percentage point um, body weight was or body fat rather was something that 
only took me like a month and a half. I, I did the opposite in many ways of what my doctor told me. Once again, that more of the fat burning approach or, or the cyclic ketogenic approach, carb cycling combined with, you know, partitioning nutrients around training. I really did go deep into this. And then I just realized that it was way freaking easier than following the wrong advice for years, which made me fat and sick and put me on a bunch of different prescription meds. So it made me mad enough where I'm just like, People need to know this. Like, I, I can't just keep doing this consulting stuff where I'm showing up to meetings and getting paid and doing work that doesn't matter to me. Like, there are enough people kind of reaching out through my blog and podcast and even family members who had lost 20, even 60. Like, I remember my dental hygienist lost, lost 60 pounds in like six months just from when I was able to like utter in my cleanings. And it was, it was one of those things where I'm just like, I don't know. I feel like I'm being pulled in this direction. Let's see what happens. Let's let's go. Thankfully, you know, and I could pay my bills doing something else in the meantime. Let's start. I have the energy for this project. Let's do it. And and I think one of the tricks was I didn't try to squeeze money out of it too soon. Abel, it's a it's been a real treat to have you on the show, and we're running just a little bit short on time. But one thing that I wanted to ask you about is this book that you've just released called. Forgive me if I've missed the name, but it's Designer Babies Get Scabies. Designer right? Babies Still Get Scabies, yeah. Still Get Scabies. Okay. Des describe a designer baby. De describe a scaby. <laughs> and what do they have to do with each other? <laughs> okay. So, uh, Designer Babies. Uh, the book is basically uh, I put I put out a book of poetry and satire, and it's called Designer Babies Still Get Scabies. The first poem uh, starts with that one, and designer babies are something that are are quickly gaining in popularity. You know, it, it's a technology that is getting a lot of chatter, and it's basically the idea that if you want a baby with blue eyes. And blonde hair, you can do that. You can just check those boxes. You can go into the doctor's office and basically shop for a baby and pick out the different characteristics. Now, there are spiritual and scientific implications to both of those things. And I certainly wrestle with them. I, I wrestle uh, with the dichotomy between... Would Mother Nature like this? Would would God like what science is doing? Would you know? Would the spirit like the direction of all this? What what is the metaphysics involved? And, and also, in a pretty rough world, I I learned early that writing music and writing songs, writing poetry, and trying to laugh about it or, or trying to get that emotion out. Um, allows you to process it and allows you to, to chuckle or to cry or to just feel something for a second. Then you can move on instead of it just cluttering your brain and being like, Oh, I hate this guy. I don't like what's happening or whatever it is, which I feel every morning. Usually processing that through art is something that's really important. And, and for a lot of people, they're like, what are you doing? Why would you put out a poetry book? You just put out a New York times bestselling health book. Are you out of your mind? And um, maybe I am, but I, I think it's important to lead by example and also do the projects that you want to do. And as profitable as it could be for us to put out endless diet books and cookbooks, I never wanted to do that. I barely even wanted to put out one nutrition book. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lot of work. But when uh, 
when you approach your projects, like writing a book from a different perspective, where I just literally some of those poems I wrote when I was 14 or 15 about politics. And when I dug them up and reread that, I'm like, oh, wow, this sounds like it's from right, right now. I wonder what would happen if people read this. And so putting it out there, it's funny because the, oh, scabies. <laughs> scabies are basically a skin condition, like like chiggers or really tiny fleas or ticks that get in there and irritate your skin and do horrible things. So designer babies still get scabies is the idea, to, to sum up my thesis, that we're not quite so far above nature as we think we are. And when we tinker around, sometimes we get ourselves into trouble and we'd be better off working with nature to try to progress in a more meaningful way. And so the different poems kind of go about this and a lot of them are, are songs as well, but they, some of them stand up better than others without the music. But I think another thing I realized is that being a singer-songwriter in the 60s or 70s, it's like, I don't know, maybe half the people played guitar. Maybe half of people tried to write songs, or half of people who are teenagers or in their 20s, the people who were really into music did that. Now, how many people are writing music? How many people are writing poetry? How many people are even singing or playing guitar? Um, it, it's an important question, but but when not as many people write or experience that process, then we, our ability to uh, understand what that means or appreciate that art atrophies, it goes away. So I don't see many Shel Silversteins out there putting out silly poems. I don't see that many Bob Dylans and, and, you know, the wonderful young women songwriters writing real stuff. They're out there, but I think it's important that everyone, no matter what they're financially rewarded for, continue to just put out those weird little pet projects. And sure enough, um, it did way better internationally than it did nationally because some of my poetry is a little rough around the edges. Um, but I also wanted it to be an example where even if you're not always politically correct, it's important to still say things. If you wrap it up in a nice little rhyme or if you approach it in an artistic way, we need to hear from people and we need to hear the perspectives more than ever. Not more censorship and canceling. We, we need to express ourselves. It's good for us. Designer babies still get scabies. Even the genetically modified, they still have their faults too. That's right. Well, <laughs> Abel James is my guest. And uh, I think the thing that I really got from our conversation, Abel, is that music wasn't like the the thing that you did. It's not like the thing that you do. I, I guess we could say that you wouldn't be able to do it without your musical background. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a weird way. But I will say, I wake up and I, I practice music every yeah. day for an hour and a half or two hours. And I've been doing that for, for many years of my life. And that's what feels most natural to me. Whatever that says, people ask, what do you do? What do you do for a living? And it's like, well, is it where my money comes from or like the service that I do for others? Or is it what I want to do first thing when I wake up and can't do without? It's an important question. I think, I think we're all these things. Well, I think that resonates with everybody listening to these shows, whether you're a full-time musician or even a half-time musician. I think that will resonate a lot with listening in. So Abel James is my guest. We can find him at abeljames.com. The podcast is at fat, fatburningman.com. And then the de designerbabiesbook.com. If you want to learn more about how to make designer babies 
And I don't think there's any instructions on how to avoid getting scabies, oh, know, but, but not yet. Maybe in, maybe in part two. <laughs> That'll be the sequel. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Abel, it's been a pleasure to meet you and get to know you a little bit. And I hope, I'm sure that our listeners have enjoyed it at least half as much. Hey, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Trumpet Dynamics tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. It also tells my own story. Join me on this journey through the world of making music and making life at jamesnewcomontrumpet.com. I have blogs, videos, event calendar, and much more. And of course, if you just want to access this great podcast, just remember the URL, trumpetdynamics.com, and you're off to the races. Looking forward to the next time. Be well.